0: for you to feel like you belong even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. we are we doing the 11th? Hey, so real quick, um, Angela referred to it, but I just cannot stress enough the next two weeks how big these invite opportunities are. So if you were here last week, you know, or you can go back and listen to it. Um, Our invitation is simple, man. We know a lot of people have a lot of baggage, a lot of hurt. So it's kind of that um, New Testament narrative, Philip and Nathaniel. Hey, just come and see. Just come and check it out. Winter Wonderland, one of the best times to do that. I'm just going to tell you, I always try to manage expectations, but if you haven't been last year, it's better than what you think it is. I can almost guarantee you that. Um, Last year, we had about 5,000 attend. That's why end of year giving is such a big deal, because we've got a uh, keep up with the growth of these events. It's just a great invite in the community. So come, but make sure you bring somebody with you. And then the Christmas concerts, you can go get tickets today, and they'll give you the event bright tickets. So just find the tent. Uh, but that Christmas concert with Jeremy Rosado from The Voice, our own Aaron David, is again, it's just a great time to invite somebody outside of a Sunday morning. And then lastly, Christmas Eve, um, I think the best invite opportunity of the year, even more than Easter. Uh, I said last week, it's kind of a sociocultural thing. People just go. And so um, it's an hour service, tops, It's going to be really incredible. We've got six of them to choose from over two days. And so don't miss the opportunity to get 30 seconds of courage and invite somebody. And you hear me over say this, but you have no idea what hangs in the balance of an invite. But this is what we do as a church. And this is the best time of year, honestly, um, to watch what God does in the lives of people. And you have a bunch of people that have turned off from the church. And I don't even know you because I just know that's a part of our culture. Don't miss the opportunity to just invite them to come and see. So that's happening over the next two weeks. Today we start the Christmas series. Um, And here's the thing about Christmas, and I don't, again, I don't even need to know you to know this is true. Christmas is complicated. So it's complicated for different reasons at different seasons of your life. I've got four kids right now um, that are all 10 and under, and they're all simultaneously going through a phase where I want to Ship them off somewhere, and so you know Christmas is complicated for that reason. And getting the right gifts, and where are we going to spend it, and navigating family issues—I mean, that's the thing. Um, it's also if you're a part of a divorce, that can be really tricky. So if you're a teenager and you're trying to figure out, like, I got to choose between stepmom and dad, or whatever, um, or you got to figure out where the kids are going to go on what day. It's just—it's all complicated. It's complicated if you're married and you had to go through the conversation of who's going to get what holiday. And your wife, you know, was gracious enough to volunteer that she would take Christmas and then you would get like President's Day and Arbor Day or like however that went down. But you know what I'm talking about? Like you have to figure that out. But it is just complicated. So my point is the one thing that should not be complicated is the message of Christmas. But here's where I'm going to say what some of you have thought. And if you're thinking this, uh, listening via radio all over the state or podcasting or watching or you're sitting um, in a seat right now, it's just... It can just at times, let's just be honest, seem really unbelievable. And um, there's a lot of it that's really unlikely. And you can believe and follow Jesus and still be honest about that. And there's a bunch of the narrative that's really unexpected. In fact, what I would say is all the people who lived it felt that way. So you should feel that way. It, it, there's just a lot to it that's hard to grasp. So Matthew starts his account. Um, of the Christmas story and narrative. And he says this, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. So this is the question real quick. How did it go down? And what I want to answer for a couple minutes is kind of the unexpected layer behind the narrative, the context that most of us just kind of move on past and we don't even see. And I get it, but it ultimately lends a lot of weight to why this matters and why it's a big deal. And it may not even be for the reasons that you think. So basically Matthew's like, here's how the whole thing went down. And you can take this or leave this, but I think it's interesting. Matthew thought he was the Messiah. He saw and knew a lot of people, interviewed a lot of people. Like, I mean, Matthew was the guy who was around it all and believed that Jesus was the Messiah. That's the conclusion he came to. Now, real quick, stay with me. I'm going to be fast, and I swear I've got um, somewhere I'm going. Like This, this is, matters. So first thing, two words I just want to talk about real fast is Messiah, which is interesting. Messiah um, comes from the Hebrew word, That means Messiah. In Greek, the word is Christ. So, this may be new for you and you don't need to be embarrassed by it. Some of you thought that that was Jesus' last name, Um, that it was Mary and Joseph Christ. Mr. and Mrs. Christ is not, that's not his last name. Um, That's the Greek word for this. So, the Greek word, Christ, the Hebrew word is Messiah. That's where all that comes from. And then the other word that we just gloss on over and don't even realize that accurately understanding this actually helps us understand the christmas story in a huge way is the name jesus um i I think you know this but i want to provide a little more context today but it comes from a latin word that comes from a greek word that comes from the hebrew word yeshua tracking with me um and this is not information that you want to know but in greek and hebrew there's no j so the literal translation many of you maybe know this is joshua Now, I'm not suggesting that we should like retranslate our Bibles. My point is, if we were to, to directly and accurately translate that, it's really Joshua from the Latin term, Greek term, Hebrew term that means Joshua. So here's, this is maybe another thing that was worth coming for. Maybe that's why your prayers aren't getting answered. He's like, I would have, but you can't even get the name of God's son right. I'm not answering that prayer. Come back with the right name, and then we'll talk, right? So maybe that's been your problem, and I just connected the dot. Um, for real, like just side note, that I've grown up with this where my name is Bryant, White, like Kobe Bryant, and, but nobody ever gets that. And then I feel like a fool when I have to enunciate it, so it's like Bryant. So I don't do that. So everybody just calls me Brian, and I go with it. Not a big deal. But the um, funniest story is a guy that worked on our staff for three years, and, and I don't care. I really do not care. But it's been like three years, and, I, and I, he's on our staff, so I knew him well. And finally, I'm just like, hey, this is, this is really awkward. Because we're beyond the point of me um, telling you this in a way that's not awkward. You've been working here for three years. My name isn't Brian. I just thought you should know that. So he doesn't work here anymore. Um, <laughs> it has nothing to do with that. Um, but maybe if you get God's son's name right, he would answer your prayers. But my point in all of that is this. Um, It's easy to miss, but understanding that Jesus is Joshua, I'll explain what I mean in a second, is a key to understanding the Christmas story. Because every Jewish person... In the first century, when they were waiting for the Messiah, when they were waiting for God to show up in human flesh, when they had heard and read all of the prophecies, the person they were waiting for was in the characteristics or in the vein of Joshua. I mean, that was his name. We cannot wait for Joshua to show up and do what Joshua does. Now, what's interesting in that understanding is how they viewed Joshua. Joshua was a general. Joshua was a military man. Joshua was a warrior. And so when they read the prophecies of God coming in human flesh, Joshua touching down on planet earth, they thought of all of the characteristics of Joshua and it wasn't by accident. God came in the vein or the characteristics of Joshua. It was all strategic. And so when they thought of it, they could not wait for Joshua, the warrior king, to show up on planet earth and to free them from all of their oppressors and to set everything right. Right? Which is why, see in a couple minutes, so much of the story to the people who lived in the first century was completely unexpected. It was not what they thought. And it's still, in a lot of cases, because we don't understand the whole backdrop, is not what we think. And so, the time is going to come, he's going to give birth to Jesus, the Messiah, or Joshua, the Messiah. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, and you know these verses well, right? She was found to be pregnant with the Holy Spirit through the Holy Spirit, and in previous generations of the first century, unfortunately, they would, they would burn somebody. They would stone them. They would put them to death. I mean, that was just the culture they lived in. And you were married by 13 or 14. I mean, which, think of how insane that is. So if you're 16 years old, I mean, people in that culture are like, get your life together. Like, why aren't you married yet? You're 16, And unfortunately, or fortunately, by this point, a lot of the literal interpretation of some of those those things, those traditions of shaming and burning at the stake or, you know, stoning had kind of gone by the wayside. But here's what you have to understand, that that a lot of what informed Joseph in terms of how he responded, and don't hear me saying something that I'm not or take offense to this if you, you know, grew up Catholic or for any of us. I'm just going to tell you what he thought in the moment, I'm not being irreverent, but this is what he thought. Like, Joseph thought, when all of this is happening in real time, that Mary's crazy. Like, she's crazy. And I can't burn or stone a crazy person. I mean, come on, just think about this for a second, because you've heard this so many times that we just gloss over the details. I mean, when Mary finally shows up to her mom and Joseph, how that probably went down. I'm sure her mom absolutely lost it. Joseph, is this you this Bartholomew down the street? I knew he was like, like who, who's the father? And Mary's like, no, no, don't worry. It's, it's fine. It's not Joseph. It's not Bartholomew. He had nothing to do with this. Don't worry, mom. I'm pregnant via an angel. And Joseph and Mary are like, oh, okay. Like, I mean, they, they thought she was crazy. Joseph thought she was crazy. So what do you do? In verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, really fiance, was faithful to the law, and their law said he couldn't marry her. He needed to shame her. Fortunately, by this time, generally, they weren't at least stoning. And yet, he did not, and this says so much about him, want to expose her to public disgrace. Like, Joseph didn't want a TMZ-style moment in the public square where everybody knows. Like, he, he wanted to figure out a different way to do this, thinking she's, she's not mentally stable. I mean, that, that was his thought initially. And he had in mind to divorce her quietly, but he hadn't really decided. So like he knew he could go to a priest, do it on the down low, nobody, and, and just kind of annul this thing and go on with his life. But he wasn't sure how to do that. He wasn't sure if he should do that. And so verse 20, after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, I love this. So here's what happened in Joseph's dream that we love to just stick on coffee mugs and sing songs about without ever entering in the narrative. Joseph's son of David, and again, this is not literal, but in terms of like son of David, but in the line or the family lineage of David, which is what all the prophe- prophecies have pointed toward. Joseph, son of David, and unless you're an angel, this is ridiculous to say. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. And Joseph is thinking, you ought to give me more information of why I shouldn't be afraid. Because, A, I'm talking to an angel. B, everybody's going to assume I'm the father and my reputation is going to be ruined in this culture. So I'm going to need a little bit more information than just your declaration that I should not be afraid. So the angel continues, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph is like, that's not helping me. (laughs) Nobody's going to believe that. Now, real quick, and then I'll get back into the narrative. This is really important if you struggle with the whole idea of virgin birth, and I get it, um, I spend a lot of my time with skeptics because I just, I love that. I love, I love the fact that our, whether you believe this or not, our faith is intellectually robust, though that's not a lot of the presentations that the church has given off, but it is. And so I love talking about this stuff. And so if you're like online radio, you're in the house, and the whole virgin birth thing is just difficult, I just want to say this real quick because this is interesting. Um, nobody expected this. When Matthew quotes Isaiah in the prophecy of Isaiah in the Old Testament, it's 100 years before, Um, the verse that you're really familiar with, that a virgin is going to give birth to a son. What's just interesting to note is the Hebrew word for that is just a young lady or an unmarried person. Like that's what that word means in Hebrew. And so, The reason I bring that up is every Jewish person who had waited, who had leaned into the prophecies, none of them expected a virgin birth. It wasn't even on their radar. They weren't leaning into that. They didn't even think it was going to happen. It wasn't in their minds a central part of the story or the narrative or even the prophecy. I mean, in fact, they thought it was kind of a knockoff of Greek mythology. Like, you know, in Greek mythology, like the gods would mate with attractive humans. So Hercules' father was who? Zeus, right? And there are a bunch of others that you could talk about. So they were like, that's just a Greek mythological knockoff. Like, it doesn't make any sense. So I say all that to say this: here's the point. Nobody was expecting this. And the idea that Matthew would write into the story, the idea of a virgin birth, just so you know, does not help the story. It did not make it more credible, it made it less credible. It did not make it more believable, it made it less believable. No Jewish person, even if they knew the prophecies, were expecting or anticipating a virgin birth. The only reason that Matthew writes this crazy detail into the story is, it happened. Otherwise, it does not help his cause, it does not help people to believe it. And then the other thing to note is this, for I bore you to death, but Jesus' followers in the first century did not rally around the idea of a virgin birth, as important as it is to the story, and it is. But they didn't rally around the idea of a virgin birth, they rallied around the idea of a resurrection when Jesus came back from the dead. That was the epicenter of why it survived the first century. So the only reason that Matthew wrote it into the story is because it happened, in fact, it gives unbelievable credibility if you know the context and the history of why it's in there and why there's good reason for you to believe that it is true, even though it's kind of nuts. And so, I don't know if that interested anybody else than me, but there's one person that might help because what is conceived, in, no, I don't need your pity clap, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So, an angel appeared to them. Instead of this, and I just want to tease this out a little bit for a second. This verse that you know really, really well, right? She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name and this is drum roll, this is music changes, you know what comes next, but I just want to stop you for just a second because we so often miss what they were ready for, what they were looking for, what they were expecting, what they saw as Joshua the warrior king showing up on planet earth. You are gonna give him the name, Yeshua, literally Joshua. And Joseph is thinking, okay, so you're telling me I'm gonna have a son, and I'm not the father, and I shouldn't worry about it. And then I'm gonna name my son the name of the long awaited Joshua, the warrior king. Like you're telling me that this son that I didn't produce, that I shouldn't worry about. Yeah, I'm gonna give him the name of the long awaited Messiah, Joseph. You're to give him the name Jesus because. And Joseph's like, well, let me stop you again. I, I know what you're thinking. An angel um, has shown up at like my doorstep. You don't have to tell me because. I already know because. Because for hundreds of years, we've been oppressed. We were oppressed by the Assyrians, and then we were oppressed by the Babylonians, and then we were oppressed by the Persians, and then we're oppressed by the Greeks, and now we're under Roman occupation and oppression. I, you don't even need to finish, Angel. I already know why the Messiah, Joshua, is about to be born. You're given the name Jesus, because he will save his people. Just like I started to interrupt one more time before you get to the end. Yeah, he's gonna save his people because that's what Joshua the warrior king does. You remember the stories? This is what we're waiting for in the Messiah. Joshua led us past the Canaanites. The famous story where Joshua brings all the troops into Jericho and the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. We watch Joshua, the warrior king, over and over again, lead us out and over invaders, lead us into territory where we overcame occupiers and oppressors. And eventually he led us into the promised land. So it is no mistake that the now long-awaited Messiah would be Joshua who's come to do the same thing for us. To overthrow our oppressors and to move us back to prominence and do what Joshua did in the Old Testament. You're gonna name him Jesus because he'll save his people from their, and Joseph's like, I know it's annoying, but before you finish. Yeah, from their oppressors, from their invaders, from Roman occupiers. Again, you don't need to finish. We've known for centuries what Joshua, Yeshua, the warrior king, has come to do. And the fact that it's my son is crazy. And then the fact that the nation of Israel is gonna be returned to prominence is crazy. And the fact that God is gonna overthrow and overrun and finally set up dominance, it's crazy. And if Joshua was honest, he would have been like, and I just have to tell you, we lost hope for a while because you gave a promise to Abraham. And then we didn't hear from you for like 2,000 years. And then the nation of Israel did come to prominence and we thought if ever there's a time where God's gonna fulfill his promise that Joshua, a new Joshua is gonna come from God, this is the time. And then Israel came and went, and the nation was brought to its knees. And then another 400 years went by, and you didn't do anything for us lately. No prophecies, no answered prayers, and now finally you are showing up to tell me that my son is the guy, Joshua, the warrior king, come to save us from oppression. She'll give birth to a son. You're going to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people. From their sins. And Joseph's like, okay, I just angel, all due respect. That's not really a felt need. Pull all the Jewish people, saving from our sins is not in the top 10. Like, we have a lot of other needs, we have a lot of other things we want you to do, things we've been waiting for you to do. Nobody is waiting. In fact, I'm trying to say, we have a sophisticated save you from your sins system already. Like, we bring bulls and goats to the temple, and we're covered um, at least temporarily for our sins, and we've got that whole deal worked out, so we're good with that. Like, we've been doing that for a while. We don't need saving from sins. We need a bunch of other stuff. In fact, okay, this is just me messing around, but in fact, like, if he had any, you know, idea of this, Joseph would have been like, I don't think you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs and what what actually we need. Like, we need need our physiological, we need food and water and warmth. And I need some more rest. We need safety and security, belonging and love. If you would have shown up with, you're gonna give us more of those things, we're, all, we're down with that. We need esteem, we need actualization, reaching our full potential. Like, hey, hey angel, that's what we're waiting for. Save us from our sins? Not on the list. Not even thinking about that. Haven't even contemplated the fact that that's why Joshua the warrior king would show up to save us? from our sins. I'll tell you what we need saving from. Here's who needs saved. Rome needs saved from their sins. You checked out Roman people? Jacked up. Those people are a mess. They're oppressors. They're wicked. You should go save them. And we need saved from Rome. We need a savior with a sword. What's funny is, what first century Christians were looking for is the same thing that a lot of times we're looking for in 2022. We're looking for a savior with a sword. We're looking for somebody like Israel to t- return some nation to prominence or to Christianize a culture. For Joshua, the warrior king, to come and to, to move us back to a place of, of prominence. And from the very beginning, that was never on Jesus' agenda. I've come to save my people, every generation, from their sins. Now, just real quick, because you probably know how the story actually goes, Joseph said none of those things. Because when you talk to an angel, you don't talk back. Like, just real quick, I don't want to make fun, but I will for just a second like all the books that end up showing on bookshelves of like Christian bookstores that they sell because they can monetize this crap where like people are like, I think I spoke, I think God talked to me. I think God showed up and spoke to me. I think, can I just tell you, if God shows up to talk to you, you will know it. Like, there's not going to be any confusion. You'll probably be eating the pavement. Probably, your face might melt off. Like, you'll wet your pants. Like, you'll know, you'll walk away and know, if I'm going to write a book about this, I know that God showed up to talk to me. That's just the nature of God. And he is full of grace and he's full of mercy. But he is the creator God of the universe. Like, you don't generally, like, have coffee and just chill with witty banter. Like, so anybody who's publishing a book around that, that wasn't God, In fact, just real quick, not to go off on this, but like God, one of the great gifts he's given us is free will, but do you understand with all of his power believing who I think God is and the fact that Jesus rose from the grave, he has the ability to just speak and override our free will. Like if God were to show up in all of his glory, this is kind of the mystery of God, if he were to show up in all of his glory and kind of our natural state, we'd have no choice in the matter. It's kind of like you put your hand over a flame. You have all the free will in the world. Eventually, the heat and the pain of that flame is gonna override your free will. And so my point in all this is just this. Joseph didn't say any of those things. Joseph responded exactly the way you would respond and exactly the way I would respond if God shows up to talk to you. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord commanded him. I got questions, but done. I'll go with it. And he took Mary home as his wife. Do you know why we're not moved more by the idea of the Christmas story that Jesus has come to save us from our sins? Do you know why from, and maybe this is not you, but it is for a lot of us, it just doesn't move us emotionally? It just does. I mean, we're happy for it. Like, if you place your faith and trust in Jesus, believing that he came, this is what the scripture calls the the gospel or good news. He came in human flesh. He was fully God, fully human, lived a perfect life we couldn't live. And then he, with one express purpose, went to the cross to die for the sins of the, the world, past, present, future. I have Junk, I haven't even gotten to yet. Jesus already paid for that. And then he walked out of a grave alive, validating everything he said about his life and about his death. And so now, when we transfer our trust from our thinking that we could earn our way to God, which we can't, to the fact that Jesus has already done it for us, died for us, lived and performed in ways that we couldn't. And now we need him as our savior, that God does all of the work and we enter into relationship with him. But do you know why it doesn't move us more? It's like, yeah, yeah I got forgiveness in the bag and heaven when I die, and all that's great. But beyond that, there's not a lot of emotion around this. It's because we're not really sure it's a felt need. Here's Here's what the angel said. And you are to give him the name Joshua, Yeshua. Because he will save, deliver, rescue his people from their sin. But that's not what we hear. This is what we hear. And you are to give him the name Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, because he will forgive his people from their sins. And my point is just this. If you reduce Christmas or minimize Christmas to forgiveness, you have missed the primary message of Christmas. If you minimize your, like you're a Christian or a follower of Jesus, if you minimize, and that's been the case for a lot of us, like that's been our whole journey. Like somebody told us this as a kid, or maybe you were one of those people that intellectually came to the place to believe it was true at like 23 or 33. But this has been the entire journey. Well, like nobody's perfect, God forgives. Everybody's got dysfunction, God forgives. My life has been a mess, God forgives. Nobody's got it all together, but God forgives. All of that's true. All of that should be celebrated. All of that's amazing. That is not the primary message of the Christ story. And if you minimize it simply to forgiveness, you actually miss the primary message of what Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, the warrior king came to do. Because Jesus did not just come to rescue us from the penalty of sin, which is amazing. He did not come to just rescue us from the consequences of sin. And in fact, just because we live in a world of sow and reap cause and effect, we're not delivered from the consequences of sin. But he did not show up just to remove us or to deliver us from the penalty of sin or the consequence of sin. Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, showed up on planet earth in the spirit of the Old Testament, Joshua, the warrior king, and he came to deliver us or to rescue us from the nation of, the captivity of, the slavery of, the I can't get past this habit of, the domination of, and the power of sin in our lives. It was not just about forgiveness for, it was about freedom from the power of sin, which is why Joshua the warrior king showed up on planet earth and jesus alludes to this right all throughout the new testament over and over again there's the famous story that honestly if you really allowed yourself to feel it it's hard to recount but where these i mean these religious leaders dragged this woman away that they have caught in adultery these voyeuristic peeping toms basically and they, tra- they drag this woman to the temple steps. And then they drag her up the temple steps just to give you the picture. And there she is lying on the ground as people are gathering around like she's not even a person. And she's 50 yards away from the place where they're gathering bulls and goats to sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. She's probably 75 yards away from the Holy of Holies, the epicenter of God's presence where the priest goes in every year. And here she is and they've caught her, they've drug her up the steps, they've left her there like she's an animal. Everybody's gathering around and then Jesus shows up. And he says these guys, hey, whoever hasn't sinned, why don't you be the first on the docket to throw some stones? Basically, go stone yourself, was the you know my paraphrase. And I guarantee you, from the oldest to the youngest, they start to set their stones down and walk away. And then Jesus, you, you probably know the story, turns to this woman. And he says to her, like, I know, I got it, I know why you're here. I, just so you know, I don't, this is why I came. I don't condemn you. I forgive you. I cancel the debt. You don't have to carry this any longer. I'm here. I don't condemn you. But then this is the second part that never gets very much airplay. I don't condemn you. I want you to leave your life of sin. Amen. Yes. And I'm telling you that because I'm Joshua, the warrior king and I didn't come to overthrow Rome I didn't come to make Israel this shining example again. I didn't come to give you influence or power or to move you to some position of prominence. I came to do something better. I came to forgive you for sin and I came to free you from the power of sin by the power of my spirit. And so I'm telling you right now in this moment, no matter how multi-generational it is, no matter what your mom did, no matter what people have said to you, no matter how much you are defined and identified by this, in this moment because I have all of the power. I am forgiving you and I am setting you free because I came to release you from the power of sin. Man, the question is if we know us and know our stories, like, is that possible? Like, can we leave, because it gets real personal, right? When you start to think about you or you start to think about other people around you, can we leave the captivity or the nation or the slavery of sin, this is what Jesus says. I love this verse where he's talking to these religious leaders and Pharisees in John 10. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's just talking about like any, any thief. This is what they do. This is who they are. They come to steal. They come to kill. They come to destroy. But I have come. And he contrasts himself that you may have life and have life to the full. That's bigger than forgiveness, And I'm grateful for forgiveness, but come on, forgiveness just puts you at zero. Forgiveness just puts you at the starting point on the bottom rung. This is bigger than forgiveness where he's going, it's not just forgiveness. It's freedom. It's deliverance. I did not come just to forgive you for... I came to deliver you from, I want to do something different with your life for the trajectory of your life, the decisions of your life, to the things that you feel internally. This isn't just about forgiveness. In fact, if this was just forgiveness, as amazing as that is, you would look forward to heaven while this life being hell. And Jesus is going to know, I'm offering you more than that. I'm inviting you into more than that. In fact, Paul comes along later and he brilliantly explains it when he says this in Romans 6. And he describes why Jesus came. And he says, therefore, do not let, by the way, that's a command because he knows it's possible in him. Do not let sin reign. Or basically this idea of once upon a time when you were without Christ, sin was your master. Sin, if you're in Christ, is no longer your master. You have a new king. Don't keep submitting yourself to another master, another king, and slavery to sin that is no longer who you are and in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Basically, don't allow yourself to live under the authority or the mastery of sin. And again, you're like, Paul, are you sure? And Paul would go, it's the entire reason why Jesus came and you simply minimized it to forgiveness. This is deliverance. This is freedom from, this is rescue This isn't just about heaven when you die. And then he says, and don't offer every part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. But rather, basically there's another option. If you're on the treadmill of multi-generational dysfunction that nobody can seem to cut it off if you're right in the cycle of decisions that you have asked forgiveness for so many times and it hasn't changed anything, if you are right in the middle of dysfunction, if you cannot get control of your emotions, if you have a carnage of bad relational decisions, whatever your thing is, if you're on the cycle of decision, forgive, decision, forgive, decision, repeat it all over again, get forgiveness, here's what he's saying, you don't have to live on that anymore and instead offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness for sin, just don't don't lose me for sin shall no longer be your master and paul in romans 5 6 and 7 he personifies sin as an entity and that the moment you place faith and trust in christ it's hard to explain this well but I'll, I'll give it a shot the moment you place your faith and trust in christ you become a son and daughter of god purpose intended lavishly loved child of the creator God of the universe. And in that moment, you are giving a new, given a new identity. And now your heavenly father no longer sees you, your dysfunction, your past. He sees the perfection and performance of Jesus. And he gives you the power of the spirit of God inside of you, not just to receive forgiveness, but begin to begin to live differently. And in fact, Paul would describe it as every single time you sin or you become a master to really bad decisions, it's an identity crisis. It's not who you are anymore. And it may feel like who you are. It's who people told you that you were. It's how your, your sin or your decisions have now branded you. But that's not how your father in heaven sees you. And in fact, it's why you get on the other side of a decision and you'll actually say, that wasn't even me. And if you're in Christ, you're 100% right. It wasn't you. It was an identity crisis. You weren't living according to who you were. You had no idea in that moment. You had every ability to say no, every ability to walk away, every ability to live a different kind of life and change the trajectory because God didn't just come to forgive. God came to free you from the captivity of sin. And so he says, "You're this is no longer your master. Instead, he summarizes this way, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Just real quick practical application. Here's all this means. Sin always kills stuff. Some of you had a marriage that was killed by sin. It wasn't even your sin. Some of you had relations die because of sin. Some of you have had your financial world in some ways killed because of really bad decisions, sin. Some of you are in addiction and it has eroded your sense of who you are. Sin has killed it. Sin always kills stuff. In fact, don't miss this. As spectacular as forgiveness is, forgiven sin kills stuff. And Paul's saying the wages of sin is death. It just kills crap all over. But the gift of God, like this is the story of Christmas, that God so loved the world that he gave. The gift of God is eternal life. And every time in the scriptures it talks about eternal life, it's not talking about heaven. That's a part of it, but that's not the primary application. Because that just means that we're saved and we're forgiven. And now can I just wait for God to do something or wait for heaven when I die for all this to go away? No, that's not what eternal life means. The moment you place your faith and trust in Christ, eternal life begins in that moment. I didn't just forgive you. This is not just about what's gonna happen on the other side of this life. This is how I want you to live right now. I've freed you. I've rescued you. I've taken you out of the captivity and the slavery of sin. And so the message of Christmas is forgiveness for, freedom from. Forgiveness for, do not stop there, freedom from. That in Christ, sin is no longer your master. was the power of the spirit of God, you have the ability to not just live forgiven, you have the ability to live free. So as we close, I, you know, for, for a lot of you online or on radio in the house, like th- there was a point where you made a decision to follow Jesus, to place your faith and trust in Jesus. And this is one of those messages, like it's in some ways so frustrating for me because I can't get you to get this. This is a thing that I can't really understand. It's part of the mystery of God where you can hear it 400 times and then there's just a moment where you are awakened to the reality of it. And I've seen this happen so many times where almost in that moment, things just begin to change because for the first time, you recognize what you've had access to all along. And so I just want to say this because for some of you, by the power of the spirit of God, you just need this spoken over you you just need somebody to tell you what is true. And what is true in Christ has the ability to set you free and change your life. So I I just want to say this real quick, because for some of you, you're kind of like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. Like you've had the shoes the entire time. And you've been living in this stuff. You've been identifying according to the label your mom had given you there's three generations of addiction to this thing and you're not going to be any different. You can't stop making these decisions. You can't stop thinking this way. You can't free yourself from these emotions. I I just want to tell you in Christ, the authority of a God who walked out of a grave alive, you can go home anytime you want to. You can be free anytime you want to. So, I just want to speak this over you real quick if somebody hasn't done this in a while, and maybe by the power of the Spirit of God, because my words mean nothing. This may be the start of a moment for some of you. So, I just want to say this real quick and we're going to end. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're carrying, whatever cycle that you've been on for a decade, sin is not your master. Sin is not your master. And you maybe have been living in something for a while and you can't see a way out and it doesn't feel true for you. But sin is not your master. One of the things I pray almost every day when I get up, kind of in echoing Paul's words is, God, I just surrender the instruments of my body, my body, my life, I surrender it to you. And then I'll constantly pray this prayer, not knowing what's gonna come my way, what I'm gonna be faced with, what temptation is gonna be pulled in front of me is just to remind myself of the truth over and over again. I'll just pray, hey Jesus, help me to remember that there is no sin, there is no temptation, there is no decision that has mastery over me. Sin is no longer my master in Christ. And I know for some of you, if you could get up and shout, if you weren't concerned about what other people thought, you would do it right now. Because there was a moment where you just were awakened to this, that sin is not my master and it changed everything about your life. And so it's my prayer in this moment that somehow God would do this in you and you would recognize there, there is nothing that is keeping you where you are. And however powerful the sin or the multi-generational dysfunction is, Jesus' power is greater. And then lastly, I wanna say this to anybody who's just, you're not sure yet, you're investigating Jesus, I don't know about this whole thing. I just wanna say this to you. If you ever get to the point where you cross the line of faith and believe, I just want you to hear this in advance. It's whatever you're struggling with. The moment you place your faith and trust in Jesus, sin does not have to be your master. Jesus is inviting you not into just a forgiveness, into life and life to the full. And Christmas is a standing invitation from your Heavenly Father that you can enter a relationship where sin does not have to control, does not have to keep you in slavery, does not have to dominate you, does not have to be your king your Lord or your master any longer because you already have a Lord and Master who's inviting you to live differently. And you are give him the name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, the warrior king because he will save, rescue, and deliver his people from their sins. In just a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to close with communion. And we don't do this a ton because I I don't want this to ever be ritualistic. And so I'm very strategic of when we do this, but we couldn't think of a better way to end this. This it may be weird for some of you, or you may have some kind of baggage with this based on your church background. Not a follower of Jesus. You don't have to participate in any of this. You can just chill. But for many of us as followers of Jesus, it's meaningful because communion is just this reminder of the cost or the price that was paid in order to save us. Not just forgive us, but to deliver us. And so in just a second, we're going to participate in that and then close with the song. But all over the house, would you just pray with me in this moment as the ushers get ready to come. Jesus, I thank you so much for what you're doing. And it's kind of overwhelming to me to know that in this moment among so many people, that this is the moment, even if they've heard this maybe 30 times, for some 300 times, for others the first time, for whatever reason, you've chosen this to be the moment where you awaken them to the reality of the fact that it's true. And they maybe have lived in slavery to sin. They've lived under the domination of dysfunction. But this is the moment for the first time that they're realizing that in Christ, they're set free. And so I can't do that for anybody. I don't have the ability, but your word and your spirit, they have the ability. And so do your thing in the hearts of people. And I pray that maybe this would be a moment for some, that it would change everything that we're not just waiting for forgiveness. We've been given deliverance. And I pray that we would walk in that. And so we pray all of this in Jesus' incredible name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways?